Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing the technical, practical, and sociopolitical considerations of dubbing a U.S. television show for Latin American audiences. Our guest is Dr. Lorena Bernabo. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Entertainment and Media Studies at the University of Georgia. Dr. Bernabo and her PhD from the University of Iowa in the Department of Communication in 2017. Her dissertation titled Translating Identity, Norms and Industrial Constraints in Adapting Glee for Latin America won the top dissertation award from the Organization for the Study of Communication, Language and Gender. Work from this dissertation has been published in the journals Critical Media Studies and Media Communication and the Velvet Light Trap, and has earned an award from the Media Industries Group of the International Communication Association. Dr. Bernabo continues her study of translation, having visited The Kitchen, a prominent Miami dubbing studio, and she has a forthcoming book chapter on U.S. responses to the subtitle Oscar-winning film Parasite. Lorena, welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. Thank you, Juan. I want to start by asking you, so your work broadly, I would say, works on, is on media and translation, right? Yes. Um, could, you, could you talk to us about why does this topic interest you, and then why is it important, uh, an important topic to study? Sure. So I've always been interested in the representation of gender in television. I grew up watching TV obsessively. Um, I have an Excel document to make sure I don't ever miss an episode of one of my favorite shows. I'm just, I'm a little insane. Um, and I wrote extensively on Buffy the Vampire Slayer in college. So that's always been kind of my passion. And so when I was getting my PhD in media studies, um, I kind of wanted to bridge that with my experiences of serving in the Peace Corps in Costa Rica. Uh, I had spent a lot of time down there watching TV, both as a way to kind of feel connected to my home, to kind of fight, you know, the feeling of isolation, uh, and also to help me pick up some Spanish, to develop my Spanish skills by listening to dubs and reading translations. Um, and so I was just, I found that I was really interested in how the translation process affects the ways that gender and identity get kind of reconstructed or reconstituted, uh, reconstituted, um, particularly when we're talking about a uh, really diverse collection of identities like you find in a show likely, uh, in a culture, uh, you're referring to kind of all of America that we think of traditionally as being more kind of hegemonically masculine and we're familiar with concepts like machismo and, and the like. Right. So, the specific article that we're talking about today is Progressive Television, Translation, and Globalization, which appeared, uh, which was published in the journal Belleville Light Trap, volume 80 in 2017. So um, can you give us a brief history of this particular article, uh, where it came from, um, how did the project originate, how long did it take, all of that? So this is basically kind of highlights of my dissertation. Uh, I was very... Lucky, I think I like to think of it as a combination of luck and moxie. Um, but I happened to meet the creator of Glee in 2012 when he tagged along with a couple of the actors from Glee. Uh, they came to Iowa to do a get out the vote kind of event uh, for the 2012 election. And so while people were lining up to meet the actors, I went over to 
fawn all over the creator. Uh, and I happen to ask, you know, is there any chance that a scholar, you know, someone like me who has written about Glee in her graduate courses uh, could visit the set? And he said, sure. You know, we have people on the set all the time for things way more annoying than scholarship. And I thought, like, yes, less annoying than a journalist. That's my entry point. And so I was able to do a visit to the set, uh, speak with uh, the creator, Ian Brennan, for like an hour. Uh, I met with another executive producer, Dante DiLoretto. And I, I, I talked to them in these interviews about the way Glee travels around the globe. Uh, and they weren't really very well informed on that part of it. They were very much focused on Glee's immediate production, but they passed me along to people who would know how to answer those questions. Uh, and I kind of got passed along up the ladder as it may be uh, until I was in contact with the dubbing studio in Mexico City that dubs Glee for all of Latin America. Great. And so, so what was that like? Once you finally get in contact with the dubbing studio in Mexico, then you go there, right? You did some uh, on, on sites or research? Yes. So I did two site visits. I was very lucky to have a good chunk of funding from the University of Iowa to conduct research. And so I was able to afford two different research trips. My first trip happened in the summer of 2014. I believe it was August. And Glee was not being dubbed at the time because it was on hiatus. But I wanted to kind of get a sense for the uh, facilities, for the team, for the process, uh, all that good stuff. And so I went down and spent about a week. I was there, I think, most days. There, there might be the occasional day where they were working on something that was more under wraps, but if it was something that had already been released uh, in America, uh, then it was something that I could be, I could sit in on. So for example, with my first trip, they were dubbing a movie called As Above, So Below. I believe it was a horror film set in France. It's kind of psychological. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I got to watch them dub that. Um, and then a biopic about... I don't remember who, Jackie Robinson, maybe. I just, I remember it was a black man and that Dan Aykroyd was in it. And so I was able to, again, observe and just sit in the uh, editor's booth, right? The guy who actually does the recording and talks to the director through the big window uh, and just ask any question that came to mind. They were just, they were all so friendly. I spent a lot of time with Brenda, who was kind of the office manager, who did a lot of the kind of technical nitty gritty of, of getting files and sending files off. I was able to do a phone interview with the uh, man, Jesus Vallejos, who wrote the Spanish language script of Glee. So we just did a phone interview on that first trip. And then I was able to meet uh, Nicolas Frias, who was a director for Glee, as well as a few of the voice actors who, who perform on Glee um, and kind of just kind of get my feet wet, get a sense of things and get to know them a little bit. Then when I returned in March of 2015, they were, you know, fully dubbing Glee. Uh, and so I was able to go spend a week again in the studio, uh, kind of watching the entire process of them dubbing a single episode. Uh, and during that week, I was also able to go visit Jesus Fejo, the translator, where he lives about uh, 95 minutes outside of Mexico City. And he let me observe him as he translated the next episode that it was going to be dubbed. So I was able to get the kind of soup to nuts, full picture of the dubbing process. That's great. Yeah, you got you really got to see all of the different elements. And it's, it's one of those things for industry research is the getting the access is hard enough, right? Uh, but then being 
then being allowing you to be so open to get the different process, um, access to the process and answering all your questions, I think is um, yeah. it's great. I think it was helpful to have them, you know, getting those emails from each person along the way saying, please help Lorena. Um, you know, as a scholar, I wasn't out to do any kind of journalistic gotcha. Like I was very non-threatening. Um, I didn't even have my PhD at the time. And even now, uh, in subsequent research that I did in Miami, uh, again, they kind of, they seem to struggle to understand what it is that you're trying to do because to them, it's just a job. Like it's a profession that they're good at and they care about, um, but they don't always understand why it might be of interest to an academic. And so I had to send them this article and uh, kind of tout my references as someone who can be relied upon to be respectful in a professional setting, uh, to respect whatever boundaries are put up. So, uh, you know, some content that you can't access. Uh, there was one day, for example, that New Art was working on a dub of one of the Fast and the Furious movies. And they said, do not show up on Wednesday. You will not get in the building. Like we are your locking key. Uh, but, but both, both companies were very um, friendly, you know, once they understood that I was not a threat and that I was just kind of there to observe and explore and understand, you know, it's just people who I think are understandably flattered that someone cares about what they might perceive as being mundane work. Right, for sure. So, so you mentioned that one of the things that seems to be a gap is um, industry professionals, not fully grasping, well, why are you interested in knowing about this work, right? If you don't work in this work. So how would you, how did you explain it? Or even generally, how would you explain what is the importance of this work uh, from a scholarly perspective? Why study the pro actual production process of, of a dubbing of a show? Well, I think part of, part of what's missing from so much scholarship and production studies is attention to translation. Um, production studies has considered global media flows, uh, but the actual translation process kind of gets glossed over unless you specifically study translation. Translation studies often don't come from a place of looking at translation as a verb, as an action, right? Translation studies are often based on the text, um, on the translation as a noun. And so what my research does is not to just look at uh, producers, you know, the, the script writing, the process, and not just look at the kind of final product, but putting those two together to see what is happening behind the scenes. What are the kinds of norms or expectations or constraints, right? What are the, the factors that shape what they can or cannot do? And then given all those factors, how does that shape the ways that identity are constructed? Right. I think it's really interesting because you are bringing in two fields that are interested in sensibly similar things, but from a different angles, right? And when you're saying it's like both angles could benefit from learning from another. So production studies is interested in the actual processes and the labor in the industry organization of how we get the media text that we consume. Uh, but most people are not looking at one of those aspects, which is translation, right? Especially media that, that travels around the world. And translation studies is very interested in the final product, but less interested in how we get to that process. Um, and in some way, what your work is doing is bringing those two together and having them speak to each other. Right, and I think, you know, the fact that I was able to kind of maneuver my way into the dubbing studio in the first place uh, is kind of a testament to why so much translation studies is so focused on the text, because it is 
hard to get that access to have the funds um, to be able to go and actually do the study. So that might, you know, in part explain why people are so reliant on just kind of comparing the original to the uh, translation and to kind of comment on fidelity or to point out things that changed for better or worse. Right. So you were explaining how the, the work sort of started, which is you met the creator of Glee and got to visit Glee, the set, and then sort of get contacts through there uh, to other people. So in some ways, the the practical consideration is that's why you're focusing on Glee, right? Because it's the one you have access to. And as you mentioned, you don't always have access to it. Right. Um, but are there other other reasons why Glee works as a very helpful case study for the kind of questions that you're asking? Absolutely. I don't think I could have picked a better case study. It was kind of a, a perfect storm and the stars aligned to allow me to have this be my case study. I think before I met the creator, I already knew kind of broadly because I was, a, I was a couple of years out. I was only, oh gosh, my second, I'm starting my third year of grad school. So I wasn't at the dissertation stage yet. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to look at American programming in Latin America. And once I got access to Glee, I thought, hey, what are the odds that Glee is airing in Latin America? And sure enough, it is. Um, it is one of many Fox productions that airs on Canal Fox, which airs throughout Latin America. And so, uh, you know, they they air any number of shows. And I would imagine that, you know, at a certain point, I wasn't talking to Glee people anymore. I was talking to Fox people. And so Fox people could have passed along and said, you know, give Lorena access, please, to translation of Fox programming. And so I'm sure there were other things that I could have picked. But Glee is a show that I, you know, watched as a fan. I was familiar with it. I was able to pick up on nuances. Um, so if I, if I heard a character being performed in the dubbing studio, I could kind of, you know, with my own subjective position, have a critique of, um, you know, its strengths or weaknesses as I saw them compared to the original. Right. Yeah. And as you point out, it at some point you move into Fox and Fox connection to the distribution in Latin America. And it's interesting, I mean, not surprising in some way, but interesting that the studio that dubs Glee for Latin America is based out of Mexico City, uh, New York dub. So could you give us a brief uh, sort of explanation of why this is not so surprising? What is the sort of centrality of Mexico uh, for Latin American television? So yeah, so I would say um, Mexico City, along with Miami and I believe Venezuela, have large uh, dubbing industries and development. Mexico's has been around for a long time. So I believe New Art Dub, uh, under its original name, uh, which I don't remember, it was originally created in the 1950s or 1960s, and it was Disney's go-to. So they got a lot of work that way. Uh, and so while there are a number of dubbing studios in Miami, in, I'm sorry, while there are a number of dubbing studios in Mexico City today, New Art Dub really has a long history. Uh, and so they are able to kind of rely on that history as evidence of their longevity, of their professionalism, um, that they can be relied on as a, you know, a partner in creating texts for a very diverse population. Right. So the, the sort of industrial elements are there too, right? And then, especially thinking of places like Mexico City and Miami, there's also, they're sort of understood as like cultural centers for um, Spanish language media, right? In some ways as well. Yes. 
Yeah, Mexico City has, or Mexico in general, is kind of perceived as having the neutral Latin accent. So a lot of the, even the original productions that you will find throughout Latin America um, will be from Mexico. I think Mexico, Colombia, and Argentina, I believe, are kind of the primary producers of telenovelas, for example. Um, but Miami, you know, they really have a leg up because their accent and this is the kind of the discourse and take it with a grain of salt, but that their accent can be understood by anyone anywhere. Right. It sort of becomes for a number of historical reasons becomes that like quote unquote neutral accent. There's no neutral accent, but it's the accent that we've gone used to. Exactly. Uh, so you assume that, oh, if he has a Mexican accent, it'll be fine because everyone can understand it um, as opposed to something that is very, very accented and, and unusual. Um, so it helps to have the dubbing studio there, I guess. Um, and even if I guess the, even if the actors themselves that you hire are non-Mexicans themselves, they're probably living in Mexico City for a while, um, and they've been in the industry, so they've learned to develop a sort of neutral quote sure. unquote. Neutral I I imagine it is comparable to people who uh, want to be newscasters on CNN, and they have to kind of rid themselves of their Southern drawl or their Bostonian, if you can call that an accent, um, those kinds of regional markers. Exactly. Yeah. You rid yourself of the regionalness and be able to create a specific voice that is understood throughout. Exactly. So let's talk about Glee specifically. So you mentioned it was it, it actually worked out great that this was the case study. Um, what, what are some things about Glee that made it such a fruitful case study uh, at the level of text, let's say? So what makes Glee so handy a text to do this kind of analysis of is that it has such a diverse cast. Um, my article focused on, I believe, kind of comparing two different gay men, for example, and how they're represented. Uh, I commented on two different transgender characters. So you're able to have that kind of distinction as well. Um, I believe one trans woman and one trans man. Uh, and I believe I also commented on a black woman and an Asian woman. And so kind of talking about those elements. Uh, in my larger dissertation, I believe I also talk about the kind of presentation of a character with Down syndrome um, and the weird ways in which uh, Santana Lopez's character becomes less Latina in a Latin American setting because, she, you know, the character of Santana would kind of mark herself in the original as ethnically different by dropping the occasional Spanish word, but in the Spanish dub, it's all Spanish. And so she kind of loses that distinction. Uh, and so I, I commented kind of more broadly than in this specific article, but there's just so much to work with to think through how those identities get uh, represented or represented by the translation process. Right. So, so it's interesting. So the dissertation, uh, focus on more. The article focuses on uh, race, right, uh, between Mercedes, uh, who's the black character in Glee, um, and then focuses on gender, so the two transgender characters, um, and then focuses on sexuality, right, or the the representation of sexuality through voice as well. Yes. So what, what are some issues with the dubbing of something like the character of Mercedes um, and the question of race and, and what gets gained, what gets lost in, in translation there. Right. So when I, I think I might have met the woman who did the dubbed voice for Mercedes and she was very clearly not black. And I happened to ask, you know, are there black voice actors? Uh, do you know of any? And she said, no. Uh, 
Mexico City. I don't know the the racial breakdown in Mexico City. Um, I know that Latin America, broadly speaking, is still very racially diverse. Uh, again, I lived in Costa Rica for two years, and depending on where you went, you had very large populations of you know black Costa Ricans. Uh, but within the kind of pool of actors that Newark Dub draws from, it didn't seem that they had black actors. And as I was told, uh, I don't remember who exactly phrased it this way, but they said, no one here does black voice. So, um, and, and I, I'm, how do I say? I would be troubled, I think, for someone who's not black to you know, quote, perform black voice, that seems problematic. Um, but it also, I think, is problematic that they don't have black voice actors to choose from. So for better or worse, they had a, uh, you know, white Latina doing uh, Mercedes's voice. And so she did not sound audibly black uh, in the way that the original actress kind of does. The original actress has a very deep, husky voice and the dubbing actor did not have that at all. The other way that Mercedes as a character marks herself as black or as different is in the use of slang and references to herself as black. But for various reasons, as I outline in the article, uh, she's kind of not allowed to do that or not allowed to do that as much in the translation. Because again, you have all these, you know, many and competing contradictory rules for what you can or cannot do. And because this one Miami dub, I'm sorry, because this one dub in Mexico City has to translate, uh, be translated for all of Latin America, you can't use any kind of slang. So while Colombia might have a Colombian version of uh, Black American vernacular, that would not be understood elsewhere, same as um, Mexican might not. And so you have to have very generic language and in doing that, um, that in combination with the desire to get really strong lip synchronicity uh, resulted in many instances in which her references to her blackness got stripped away. Right. And I think that speaks to your concern about not being able to account for translation without thinking about this production process, right? Because someone only looking at the dubbed Glee episode would say, oh, they chose to make Mercedes uh, in a white voice uh, and analyze all sorts of things just from that. But getting to that meant all these different implications, right? It's a labor issue. There aren't any black um, voice actors in Mexico or employed by this uh, dubbing in Mexico City. And there probably is generally a, a, a lack of black actors in Mexico City uh, just because of industry discrimination practices broadly. And then once the ones you do is a question of do they perform a quote unquote black voice or not black voice? And what are the issues with that? Exactly. Um, and then um, the, how race gets constructed um, orally, it's not just the voice, but also the slang. But as you point out, you can't use the slang because it has to be non-locally non specific. It has to be regionally specific. So all of these considerations end up explaining, not justifying, but explaining why Mercedes has that voice in the, in the Spanish um, dub, right? Exactly. But then the other thing that's interesting about Glee, it's, it's not only, uh, it's, a, it's a show that is very concerned with race, with sexuality, uh, with gender, and therefore these things need to be accounted for in the translation. But it's also a show that has songs, right? It's a musical. 
Um, so how does this complicate the, the translation process? So the two ways in which it translates or complicates the translation process, the first being that the songs are not translated. And so while the episodes are dubbed, when it comes to the song lyrics, uh, Jesus would just, you know, strict translations that would be um, subtitled onto the screen. And so you're still hearing the original actors. Uh, and in some cases, as you would expect, or as you might hope, the voice, um, the voice of the original actor uh, as they sing matches pretty well with the actors, the dubbing actor's voice. And so you don't really get, you know, it, it's more of a smooth transition from dialogue to singing. In other cases, not so much. The other way in which it being a musical affected the process was that when it was first decided that they were going to dub Glee, it had not been determined, or at least New Art had not been informed of whether or not the songs would be dubbed as well. And so the dubbing studio in trying to figure out who might be, you know, the voice actor for Kurt or for Rachel or for any given character, they had to make sure that these voice actors could sing. And so the process for casting was that for any given character, they would pick three potential actors uh, and send samples to Fox in Los Angeles. So somebody at Fox, and I was not able to access these people and figure out exactly why they made the choices they did, because I absolutely did not agree with some of their choices. Uh, <laughs> but they, you know, they chose from the three that they were given, right? And so they're they're choosing from a very small pool, pre-selected pool. Uh, they make their choice, and that's who is the voice. Um, and again, that might explain why you have someone voicing Kurt who does not sound like the original actor and who, uh, you know, whose dynamic with his boyfriend is kind of put twisted. Oh God. It's kind of flipped on its head by the translation because they cast the show with the dubbing actors. And then after they had been doing some recordings, right? Once they had established that they weren't going to be dubbing the songs, they continued to cast actors for future episodes because they were dubbing from the beginning. And so when you had additional actors uh, introduced on the show and they had to select new dubbing actors for these new characters, they didn't have to worry about who could sing. And so they were able to choose, um, you know, they had a bigger pool to choose from for picking actors to again send to Fox to, to make that final decision. And so what you ended up with, this uh, example I keep referring to, is you have Kurt, who in the original is the kind of quintessential effeminate gay man with a high, wispy voice. Um, by contrast, his boyfriend in the original is kind of, you know, as I think as one of the women at Newark described it, you know, like any other guy. Like he does not, quote, sound gay. But in the show, in the dubbed version of Glee, because of who they cast in these in these parts, the uh, more masculine of these two gay men actually has the higher voice in the dub. Yeah, and that's that makes it really interesting, right? That the let's say the original cast ends up having not always matching or not always being the 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 perfect match because they weren't sure uh, if they had to sing or all these other considerations. And as you move through the show, uh, the ma the voice starts matching. Uh, better or, or once they know different considerations change it. So it definitely for people like you who are very uh, well knew the show uh, were able to pick up on these differences and how, and this is not all to say that um, 
anything because this is decisions at the production process. They don't. They still mean something at the at the in the final product, right? So it it means something that in the dub, the the uh, masculinity portrayed through their voices is inverted. In the case of Kurt and is it Blaine? Blaine, yeah. Blaine, right? Um, and it's inter- it's important for us to know how we got to that point, but it also think about what does it mean in and of itself, right? And of course, you know, people who are watching the Spanish language dub in Latin America who haven't watched the original undubbed English version, they might not have the first clue that anything is different. They might not know that Kirk's voice is actually much higher than it than it appears to them in the Spanish dub. Right, exactly. So now it creates two or at least three different audiences, right? Audiences who only watch the English version, audiences who watch only the dub version, and then audiences who are able to watch both and notice these kinds of differences. Exactly. So one of the things that you mentioned in thinking about uh, how race is translated, how sexuality translated in the show and in the dub is that for some people, translation of difference, so how do we mark differences from the norm um, in the process of translation will require stereotyping. Uh, but you call this out as being a problematic contention. Could you explain why some people hold that? Why are they sort of, um, sort of assuming that there has to be stereotyping and translation of difference and why you're pushing back? So I think what I'm kind of specifically pushing back against there uh, was, I think it was the specific, oh gosh, I, I believe the woman that I pushed back against was talking about black stereotypes. And this was after establishing that black stereotypes with regards to voice tend to be that they don't speak clearly or well, right? And so stereotypes um, you know, aren't always inherently bad, but stereotypes of black voices and dubs are not good. Uh, and so to play up stereotypes is to remove them, um, you know, whichever minority group it is from the kind of more idealized, you know, white heteronormative masculine ideal. Uh, and so I was really pushing back against the idea that her blackness could be um, kind of reconstituted through grammatical errors as opposed to like literally commenting on her race. Um, I'm sure I would imagine that Jesus Vallejo, the translator, being the very progressive liberal man that he is, could have found a way to reintroduce those kind of race-based comments, um, maybe with more time or energy. I, I think even even someone as wonderful as even as someone as big an ally as Jesus, uh, you know, he's got X number of jobs to do. He's got X number of hours to translate an episode, uh, and if he's able to do something that works with the lip synchronization, it might just not seem like as big a deal to him. He might just that might just be a blind spot for him. Right. Well, this this speaks to another issue on um, generally in studies of translation, right? Which is um, translation is inherently subjective, right? And this is something that translation studies points out and that you point out. Um, but what you're interested in is how does it reflect the values of the translators? And not necessarily in a negative way of saying translators are trying to, to say something through the translation, but rather their perspective or their view on both the society where the original text comes from and the society that they're translating for. Their, their perspective on that society will inflect how they translate, right? So could you talk to us a little bit about that and sort of Vallejo, how 
concerned they were about um, who they were translating for, and especially how uh, Glee, who was trying to promote these progressive ideals about sexuality or race, how they were conscious and trying to address those in the translation as well. Sure. So one of the things I would point out kind of inherent in the question, right, is that Glee is trying to promote these progressive representations, and they kind of are, but they're also kind, you know, they rely on a lot of stereotypes, and there are a lot of um, really cringy moments where they kind of seem to do the opposite of what they're trying to do. Um, and, and they don't always, they're not always aware of it. So for example, um, I kind of grilled Ian Brennan when I was interviewing him and I pointed out, you know, you have this great scene in the first season where Kurt's father, um, you know, Kurt is being called a fag and his father busts in and says, you know, you will not call my son that like, you know, and, and the kid tries to defend himself. Like I didn't mean, you know, I'm not calling your son a fag. Like I'm not homophobic. And the dad just, you know, calls shenanigans and says like, you are absolutely coming after my son. This is not allowed. And it's this great moment that we can really celebrate. But then in the next season, the father comes to Kurt and says, you know, I talked to his mom and it sounds like you had a crush on him and you were making him feel uncomfortable. And you've kind of undone all this work by saying, you know, be as gay as you want, but don't make a straight man feel uncomfortable because that's not okay. So, um, you know, even the, the translators, creators, I think it'd be hard pressed to find someone working in production who sees all of those things and where they're going and the effects that they'll have. And so even a show as progressive as Glee is going to have some problems in terms of how it represents different identities. Given that it is still a very diverse show. It's a very diverse cast dealing with a lot of issues having to do with diversity and the lived experiences of diverse people. And so when it's translated by Jesus Vallejo, who's lived in the United States for a few years and is, you know, an upper class educated white man, um, he kind of carries that identity with him into the translation. And so he, you know, he is not homophobic and he is not racist and therefore neither are these audiences. He seemed to take for granted that we're living in a kind of post closet world. Um, for example, I was asking him about, you know, gay stereotypes in Mexico City. And he said, oh, we don't have, like, there are no gay stereotypes. And I said, so you didn't know Kurt was gay until he came out in the fourth episode? And he thought about it. He said, no, I knew right away. It's like, exactly, because the gay iconography that he's, you know, speaking in this high, breathy voice. And he's got the pretty boy hair. And he looks, I mean, he looks like a little homo ball. Um, so he had to kind of, in talking to me, he became aware of, you know, that maybe for all of his claims that Latin America is not this, you know, beautiful post-race, post-closet uh, haven for all people. So I think that was something he had to kind of selectively confront. He wasn't always, it didn't always occur to him to maybe pay as much attention to these things as someone with, a, you know, multiple degrees in gender studies would. Right. Yeah. And even because... We talk a lot about um, biases, especially now we're t talking a lot about biases as a way to get at uh, structural issues. Um, but it's sometimes the bias works in the opposite direction, right? Like Vallejo, the issue there was that he already imagined that the, the society or the audience that would be watching Glee was already on board with there being a, an openly gay character, right? Or them being a transgender character in the later seasons and so on and so forth. And that might not be the case, right? The people who were watching the show uh, might not be 
thinking about those things until they are confronted with the show. So the way he's translating and assuming that audience is already on board, already speaking these um, implied or implicit um, perceptions is affects in some way what how the translation gets done and also how the translation gets taken up by audiences afterwards, right? Exactly. Um, so it's, it's really fascinating to, to track those things. Um, okay, so where is this work going then? So you, you said the article is in some ways the sort of the greatest hits of the dissertation um, in thinking about race and gender and sexuality. And where has this work gone since um, in the last, I guess, three years? So uh, this project hasn't gone as far as I would like. Uh, just the kind of cruel reality of the current job market and funding available to do this kind of research. Uh, I was not able to carry on my research until last September. Uh, I was able to go down to the kitchen in Miami and kind of I was hoping to do a comparable study, uh, but the show to which they gave me access was the translation of South Park, mm. which I know I watched as a child. I could probably name the four main characters, but I'm just, I'm not literate in it in the way that I am Glee. Uh, and so I feel like that wasn't the optimal experience. Um, originally my plan had always been to do a, uh, translocal comparison of, you know, the three main sites in which American television might be dubbed into Spanish. So Mexico City, Miami, and Spain. Uh, and so after meeting with uh, the kitchen in Miami, they very helpfully, very friendly, very friendly bunch. Uh, I, I told them about my hopes to go to somewhere in, in Spain to dub, study dubbing. And they said, we have a kitchen in Spain, like go see in Madrid, like we will help you out. And so I was going to go there the first week of April of 2020. Mm -hmm. That did not happen. Yeah. So, and who knows when it will be safe to do so. Um, but I guess, you know, my kind of my interests and my research questions, I'm kind of keeping those on the back burner um, and looking forward to a day when I can safely travel to Madrid and continue uh, this line of questioning and kind of wrap up you know, all nice with a bow, like the three, three main locations for trans, uh, for the three main locations for translating American programming into Spanish languages and seeing how those compare, um, ideally coming up with maybe some best practices, right? So I don't know to what extent translators in Spain or Miami or Mexico City talk to each other, um, but it, it might be interesting to see, you know, what can be done to develop a richer, audio tapestry in a depth program. Right. Yeah, for sure. And also, I mean, point, once you move, once you went to um, study the kitchen, it brings up an earlier point that you made about uh, the show and which shows you have access to or don't have access to, right? So it's interesting that the show itself will help the kind of questions and insights that you can draw on, right? And your familiarity with that show. Exactly. Um, and I guess even like medium, right? Because Glee, a lot of the insights come from knowing that it's a, a musical. So thinking about whether the singing voice and the speaking voice will match um, for the translator. But then South Park is an animated show, right? So it's one of those things where the lip matching is helped a little bit by the fact that there's not that much lip moving in animation, right? It's sort of the repetitive open yeah. and closing. So even like dubbing for animation will add another dimension to the kind of question that you're asking about difference and how do you convey that solely through the voice, right? Exactly. Uh, for sure. I guess you, you started to get at this, but um, with 
the pandemic. But I wanted to ask about recent developments, both in the world and in sort of um, scholarly fields that are helping your questions that are uh, getting you to rethink the project uh, or add to it. Again, very unfortunately, due to the circumstances of um, where I've been in my career, haven't gotten to really sit in this research as much as I'd like to. So I know I've, you know, gathered resources to read. Um, I've done the second research trip. I was hoping to do the third. I think the only real translation related project I've been able to take up more recently is uh, in an upcoming book chapter I have in an edited collection. I looked at responses to Parasite as a translated text in America because, you know, Parasite came out. It's a Korean film. It was uh, subtitled and not dubbed. And it won not just Best International Film at the Oscars, but Best Film. People responded on Twitter kind of very angrily to different degrees, not only about, um, you know, should foreign films be winning best film in America because the Oscars are supposed to be apparently American. Uh, but kind of this debate that became a little more mainstream about subtitles versus dubbing and the kind of racist rhetoric that came into it. Um, so this wasn't something that came out so much in the study in the article that we're talking about today, but part of the discussion in my dissertation is, you know, why subtitle versus dubbing, right. And, and issues of, um, you know, cultural imperialism, right? That one is more or less imperialistic than another, right? Um, why might a country choose to dub versus subtitle? And so it became kind of, there's a flashpoint of popular cultural uh, conversations in the United States about the merits of dubbing and subtitling. I thought it was very fascinating to kind of see how those played out. Yeah, for sure. And I think the other uh, sort of player aspect in here um, that we think about a lot at least more recently, is Netflix, right? Is becoming now the behemoth, not only in streaming media, but also having an entry into uh, into dubbing and into uh, subtitling, right? Because um, it has all of this original content, but that is trying to get at an international audience. Um, so it's trying to, uh, so it's mapping onto all of these other existing um, uh, networks of dubbing and translation, right? Yeah, I would absolutely love, and I've, feel like I know someone who knows something. So I, I have to tap into that moxie again. Um, but I would love to get access to, you know, Netflix dubbers and learn about that process at a, a kind of big picture scope. Maybe that's the uh, next project, thinking about Netflix and, and translation. I'm definitely, um, I make a note of that. As, as a behemoth. Yeah, there you go. Um, and oh, well, I mean, you mentioned this as a, as a setback, definitely for your book project. Um, but it's also an interesting divergence, which is what is happening with dubbing in and during the pandemic, right? Which is like, you can't probably travel to there. Um, but as we're recording this now, not in the same room, there might be some aspects of, of dubbing industry that can be done from home and people are probably adapting to that. Um, so then I don't know what's happening in dubbing in, in the pandemic. There's like all these considerations, right? That how they would do their own booth. And then, uh, I'm assuming from what you described, part of the process is the director is kind of like they're recording a song, right? The director is sort of giving them uh, notes and pausing and recording and so on and so forth. So you'd have to develop some way to do that virtually as well. Yeah, and they yeah. were they were different. I will say um, 
the the dubbing of Glee in Mexico City, right? It was a it was a large recording booth. Uh, and so the dubbing actor stands with their script in front of the TV, so they're able to see, you know, the actor that they're supposed to synchronize with. And the director has a little table in the corner, so he's got a script. He's actively directing like every line. Uh, and then on the other side of a window, you have the little booth with all the tech, where the guy, you know, tells them like speed it up, slow down, go again. He plays it back for them, all that jazz. Um, so those were very distinct roles. Uh, when I observed the dubbing of um, South Park in Miami, it was just the one guy. It was a tiny little recording booth where the actor or actress would go in, um, kind of, you know, the size of a phone booth. And then the, you know, engineer, I guess you would call him, um, was kind of doing all those roles together. Uh, and I don't, I find myself wondering now, kind of choice um i think you know with a an animated series like south park like lip synchronicity becomes a much easier uh, I, I wonder at that kind of choice and how that plays out yeah the architecture of the studio itself right how that helps or doesn't help too yeah all right is there anything um i haven't asked that you wanted to mention about the article about dubbing about any of the things we talked about. Um, but just this idea that you can't divorce the product from its production, that you can't just study a translated text. You have to study, you know, the myriad factors that went into producing that specific text, that you need that kind of context, um, which again can be very difficult to access. And I'm, I'm very lucky and grateful to have achieved that. All right. Uh, Lorena, thank you so much for joining us um, and the podcast. Thank you. I look forward to hearing the final product. This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu. Opening sound by Pottington Bear and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.